Hello and welcome to Banking Transformed. I'm your host, Jim Roos, owner and CEO of the Digital Bank Report and co-publisher of the financial brand. While government intervention in response to COVID-19 helped many people improve their financial situations, most people in the United States continue to struggle with their financial health. The question becomes whether policymakers, financial services providers, employers, healthcare providers, and other stakeholders will take advantage of the opportunity to create policies and solutions that support the long-term expansion of financial well-being for all. Our guest in the Banks Transform podcast is Jennifer Tesher, founder and CEO of the Financial Health Network. She discusses the change in the financial well-being that have occurred since the pandemic, while also presenting several warnings. According to research done by the Financial Health Network, about two-thirds of the U.S. population is considered either financially coping or financially vulnerable, meaning that they struggle to save, spend, borrow, or plan in ways that allow them to be resilient and seize opportunities. While there's been some improvement since Jennifer Tesher was last on the show in early 2020, many challenges remain. So, welcome back to the show, Jennifer. Before we start, could you provide our listeners who may not know who you are a short background on your background, as well as the background of the Financial Health Network? Sure, Jim. Thanks for having me on. It's so nice to be with you again. I feel like because of COVID, uh, video is the closest I can get to actually being with people. So, it's nice to be with you. Uh, I have uh, been uh, at the helm of the Financial Health Network for almost 18 years. It was originally called the Center for Financial Services Innovation. I like to say that this is about the last thing on earth I thought I'd be doing. I am a former journalist. Uh, I have journalism degrees and was a newspaper reporter in Charlotte many, many years ago, but was always interested in and passionate about issues about poverty and inequality and ended up at a community development bank of all places back in the day. And all of my work there ultimately led to the creation of what's now the Financial Health Network. And we're a network, we're a resource for uh, private sector companies, innovators, regulators, and policymakers who uh, understand that they play an important role in the financial lives of their customers their employees and the communities in which they operate. And they want to take steps to do their part to help improve financial health for all. Well, you know, it's interesting. As I mentioned in the intro to our show, while there were some improvements to the financial health of Americans during the pandemic, many were temporary behavioral changes, maybe artificially stimulated by the, the government or unequal across demographic segments. Where are we today in your opinion? Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more with your assessment. Um, in fact, uh, our 2021 Pulse research showed that financial health was at record high levels. Uh, 34% were financially healthy in 2021. Back in 2029, that was only 29%. Um, and in fact, in 2019, 17% um, of Americans were financially vulnerable, and that was down to 14% in 2021. So in some ways, counterintuitive, uh, but all of the stimulus uh, that the government provided, whether it was in the form of pandemic aid or extended unemployment benefits, coupled with the reduced spending that people had just simply because they weren't able to do as much as they could before, 
uh, really bolstered people's finances in an incredibly positive way. Uh, but you're right. We don't think that's going to last. We're already starting to see balances come down. In fact, I heard uh, on NPR this morning a piece about some new bank rate, uh, a new bank rate survey that showed that uh, the people who had $1,000 in savings for emergencies, that that was already going down. The saving rate is continuing to go down. And uh, while there are parts of the economy that feel quite strong, right? We've got a labor market that's seemingly on fire. Um, the stock market is wobbling some, but has had incredible growth. Corporate earnings seem to be doing quite well in most sectors. Um, uh, people are still challenged in part because inflation is putting even greater pressure on the things that were already expensive to begin with. Um, and to the point that you made earlier, um, financial health is not equitably distributed. And all of the folks who you would expect to be more financially challenged are. So while 39% of white individuals are considered financially healthy, only 21% of uh, Blacks and 24% of Latinx individuals are. Um, uh, men are more financially healthy than women. They're 43% of them are more like are, are financially healthy for women, 26%. Same thing with disabilities. People with disabilities are less uh, financially healthy. LGBTQ individuals, less financially healthy. And so it's clear that we have a set of systemic issues that are ultimately driving these kinds of financial health disparities. Well, and, and some of the things you mentioned, such as the stock market, things like this, don't really impact those who are financially vulnerable. You know, from your perspective today, what are the biggest challenges facing those who are financially vulnerable? And what is your perspective on how we address these challenges? The first thing I always say in the answer to this question is money. <laughs> uh, listen, income isn't the biggest driver of financial health, uh, but it would, be, it would be ludicrous for me to sit here and say that it has no connection. Uh, we've seen for the first time in a very long time pressure on wages, upward pressure on wages, uh, which I think is a fantastic development. But as I said a minute ago, the um, really high inflation we're seeing right now is sort of putting a damper on the effect of that wage gain um, in a really real way, because we're seeing inflation, not just on things like a new car, but on things like groceries, other kinds of day-to-day -day expenses that hit everybody. So I think that, um, incomes are, are, are critical um, around financial health. I think the other thing that's a really big driver are the other major critical expenses in people's lives that are also through the roof. So healthcare, particularly an issue in the pandemic, but already problematic before that, um, huge issues there. And we know that there's a bi-directional connection between financial health and physical and mental health, right? So financial stress can actually create or drive illness and being treated for uh, illness can put pressure on one's financial health. So that one is very serious. Um, I also think the thing, things like the cost of college, you know, I'm uh, in that boat now. My uh, oldest daughter is a freshman and I am incredibly privileged to be able to send her to um, college and to find a way to pay for it. It's extraordinarily expensive. 
Uh, and um, that's true for everyone. We see that the, the rates of student debt are continuing to mount and really are holding people back. So I think uh, expense, debt, and ultimately the need for more income are probably some of the biggest drivers. Well, it's interesting. There's a great deal of debate right now going on in Washington around the, the definition of financial infrastructure and the role government should play in securing the financial health of Americans in most of the Americans in most need. This obviously covers a lot of territory from childcare support to healthcare support that you mentioned, as well as minimum wages. Where do we start now that the government assistance programs have pretty much expired? Where where do you think we need to go and you know, knowing that we can't do everything and as much as we'd like to, where should the government start? And then in addition, where should business pick up to help those employees that they have in making sure that they're financially healthy? So um, we really need to find a way to pass some version of Build Back Better. That's not a political statement. Um, let's call it something different. That's fine. I don't really care what we call it. Um, the fact is, um, there has got to be a way to put together a package of some of the most critical um, social infrastructure, if you will, uh, in order to really help bolster the finances of Americans. You know, I think we sometimes forget that, you know, this 70% of GDP in this country is consumer spend. Um, and when we don't bolster and set up for success citizens, they can't spend. And spending is what unfortunately drives our economy. And so, you know, this isn't this isn't charity. <laughs> um, this is about making sure that we're really revving the engine of our economy. Um, I think that's critical. I think, you know, unfortunately, the child tax credit, we saw huge benefits from uh, increasing the size of that benefit and uh, making it available, uh, pieces of it available monthly. Uh, and that has now ended. I don't know if we'll get that back because um, Senator Manchin uh, is particularly not excited about that. Uh, but I do think that anything we can do to turn existing government benefits um, into uh, cash flow uh, stabilizers um, is hugely helpful. Uh, uh, you know, there's been a lot of talk for years and there and there's an ability to do this, to take the earned income tax credit, which working Americans who fall below a certain income are eligible for. Um, if there's there's an ability to get that as a monthly payment as opposed to a lump sum during tax season. Um, but there are things that make that difficult and put a real onus and risk on the taxpayer. So there, there are just, I think, so many ways in which we can try to turn one time uh, lump sums into uh, more regularized cash flow. I think that's really important. And then I do think we're in this interesting moment where the government and business really need to find ways to partner together to write the new social contract. You know, world, post World War II, companies thought it was their responsibility to uh, make sure that workers had everything they needed and that it was the government's responsibility to provide for those who weren't able to work. Um, and then that changed over the course of time and both the government and business turned their back on the worker and put all of the risk back on workers' shoulders. And I think we're in a moment where we need to spread the risk 
again a little bit. And we're seeing employers who we're doing a ton of work with really embracing this. Workers have more power today than they've had in a long time and are really going out of their way to think about the financial health of their workforce, whether it relates to their pay, the broader suite of benefits, and the understanding that not all workers are created equal, right? That we can't we can't continue to have HR policies that are colorblind. We have to recognize that different employees have different needs and we need to meet them where they're at. Well, you know, it's interesting. You, you talk about what is in effect the future of work. And while it seems like every employer is looking for employees, many people require more than minimum wage to financially survive, while others can't even come close to handling the burden of daycare expenses if, if they were required to come back to, to work. I mean, we have a, a situation in our family where, you know, we have two working uh, people, a, a dual working household, and yet putting their child through their their education process right now for them to be able to work takes up one entire income. And, you know, we have to do something about that because, you know, there's no way they're going to be able to buy a house. You talked about the, the spending of Americans. You know, it, the trickle-down effect of this is dramatic. You know, is there a viable solution that, that can help to cover this beyond simply the minimum wage? One of the silver linings of the pandemic has been uh, – a real honing in and a focus on what many call the care economy, with whether it's about caring for our children, caring for our older relatives, caring for the sick. Um, that's actually an industry. Uh, but those people who work in that industry are among some of the lowest paid and most poorly protected with some of the most egregious working conditions. Um, and it's just the juxtaposition of these are our family members who we're hoping someone else is going to care for in our absence, and yet we treat them this way. And so I'm heartened by the increased focus on the care economy and um, a lot of action at the state level to try to bolster care workers. Uh, and it's not just about the money they make, although that's important. It's also about, again, their working conditions, their ability to uh, have someone watch their children while, the, while they go out to work. And, you know, I see this in my own workforce. I have a lot of uh, people who have young children at home, and we all know the challenges right now with COVID on top of being able to afford um, quality daycare. Um, and I think this has been incredibly challenging for women. That's not to say men don't play an important role in the care economy, um, but we still live in a country where women tend to shoulder more of that burden. Uh, and, you know, the statistics there about the impact that that's had on women and their uh, financial health um, is it really sets us back decades in many ways. So I think uh, I've seen a lot of banks in particular and other large corporations increase the amount of subsidy they're providing to their workforce for childcare. And I've seen some of them actually do more than that, try to organize uh, daycares themselves or identify people who can provide that care for their employees. And I think we're going to have to, um, I think we're going to have to continue to invest there. Well, it's interesting because, you know, we talk about the pandemic and all the negatives, but really it's increased the awareness of these challenges. You know, we, I keep on looking at the, what I'm going to call the work from home biases that are 
overwhelmingly, as you brought up, really pointed towards the, the female workforce, especially single moms and minority moms who can't afford to go to work right now with the health, the daycare situation being so expensive. You know, and, and then we talk about the next phase, which is, is there going to be a disproportionate bias against people who have to work from home around promotion and around pay raises and this, this nature? We haven't even scratched the surface here because I don't think we really have have understood what biases may exist in this new work from home or or dual um, you know hybrid economy. I couldn't agree with you more. You know, we already all of us have biases, um, implicit biases that we just don't even realize. They're just so baked into the fabric of how things are done in many cases. And you know, I think fueled by the murder of George Floyd a couple of years ago, you know through the racial reckoning that is occurring in this nation, more people are at least trying to become more aware of some of those biases. And now we're introducing a whole new way of working that um, uh, could create a whole new set of biases uh, if we're not careful. The good news is because there's so much focus on this right now, I'm hopeful and I'm certainly seeing and reading a lot where those kinds of considerations are being um, considered up front as employers are starting to think about, um, well, forget the return to office date. This is the way it's going to be. You know, how do I ensure that FaceTime in the office um, doesn't somehow become beneficial um, as it relates to someone's ability to progress or to be paid more. It's certainly uncharted territory. So let's take a short break here and recognize the sponsor of this podcast. This show is sponsored by FIS. Have you ever felt frustrated in checking out online or making a payment over the phone? The go-kart team at FIS Impact Lab certainly was, and that's why they created a better payment experience. GoCart recognizes your email and lets you pay quickly anywhere with no passwords and no long forms. You can pay faster for anything, even things you wouldn't expect like healthcare, professional services, and more. GoCart also goes beyond online checkout and allows you to pay easily by email, text, and even with QR codes. If you sell products or services online or in-store, find out how you can use GoCard to simplify payments and increase your sales at gocardpay.com slash podcast. FIS, advancing the way the world pays, banks, and invests. We'd like to thank our sponsor, Microsoft. See how Microsoft can help unlock new opportunities at speed and scale through innovative business processes, delivering differentiated customer experiences across channels, innovating new products and services, and redefining new ways of thinking. Find out more at Microsoft.com backslash financial services. Welcome back. I'm joined today by Jennifer Tesher, founder and CEO of the Financial Health Network. We have been discussing the impact of the pandemic on the financial wellness of Americans and the challenges going forward. So, Jennifer, financial institutions have been in the news quite a bit recently with the announcements of rollbacks of legacy overdraft policies that hit, obviously, the financially vulnerable with excessive fees. Is there a potential for a double-edged sword here, since some consumers might have actually benefited from the opportunity to get short-term loans that were less costly than other alternatives? Uh, so I have to say, I have been blown away 
at all of the recent announcements from some of our largest financial institutions about some very significant changes they're making to their overdraft policies and fees and the speed at which it's all happening, frankly, without even a government mandate. I mean, there's been a little bit of a threat of a mandate, but you and I know that those things can take years to actually uh, fall into place. Uh, so it's, again, I think this is a, another example of what happens uh, when the pandemic shines a light uh, on people's real financial circumstances. You know, uh, we I often hear the argument that, well, overdraft does help somebody pay for diapers, right? Uh, or food that they wouldn't be able to afford. Um, I would say a couple of things. The first is I've been really impressed that um, many of the institutions that have been changing their policies aren't just getting rid of overdraft or reducing fees. They're also adding a range of other products and tools that are actually meant to solve the underlying problem in the first place, right? So overdrafts technically yep. aren't loans. People often need some cash flow. Um, and so Bank of America, for instance, um, already has a $500 loan that you can take out instead of an overdraft. Wells Fargo has said they're gonna create right. one. Um, there are a lot of different uh, features and tools that um, institutions are uh, uh, creating to really meet the underlying need. You'll also notice that both Bank of America and Wells Fargo said that they were going to get rid of the fees to connect a checking and a savings account, which frankly, I never even understood that. It's all my money. You're moving it with the click of a button. Why should I have to pay for that? In fact, many times I'm moving it myself now that I can do it on my mobile phone. Uh, so right. I worry less about that. I also think that for the biggest institutions, at least in the last couple of years, there's already been a concerted effort to start to uh, focus on the folks at the tail who are really the heaviest overdrafters. Uh, because remember, you know, some huge percentage of overdrafts are generated by a very, very small percentage of customers. And those folks in many cases are either using it fully intentionally as a cash flow tool and they know they know that they're doing it, or they're completely insolvent. And we shouldn't be actually extending them any more credit because it's just going to create a hole for them. So I'd, I'd rather see us continue to evolve banking away from punitive fees and punitive products and instead say, how can I actually solve the underlying problem for somebody? Well, you know, it's interesting. This, this, you know, as I look at it deeper, it's almost as if financial institutions are finally getting impacted by the fintech firms that never had in many cases overdraft fees where they allowed early access to paychecks. All these things that the fintech started, a lot of the larger banks now are, are starting to embrace, and it could be that the com competition is actually starting to move market share to such a degree that there has to be a sit up and take notice. So, you know, it's all- I, I couldn't agree. I couldn't agree more with you, Jim. And in fact, what's really interesting is, um, you know, we invest in early stage fintechs that are solving financial health challenges through our um, financial solutions lab accelerator. And one of the earliest investments we made was in a company called Dave. Yep. And Dave's original uh, sell was, we'll help you avoid overdrafts. That was their, I mean, it, it, like every company does, they've morphed and changed a million times, but that was their 
that was their opening salvo. And it really took the market by storm. And I don't know if you noticed, but they actually just uh, went public uh, a couple of weeks ago through a SPAC. Um, and I found it just so interesting, the timing of that with the timing of the banks now uh, moving away from overdraft. I absolutely think that those things are connected over the course of time. Similar with, would we have ever expected fin a little cottage industry of fintechs focusing on saving? I mean, like who thought there was any money in saving? And now banks are copycatting that. And the whole two days early thing, prepaid cards have been offering your direct deposit two days early for years and years and years. You know, but when Chime starts advertising it and all of a sudden it becomes a draw, um, now you see this being a, becoming a standard practice, which again is so fascinating because there's virtually no risk here um, given electronic payments. Uh, it's an easy thing to do. Well, it, it also shows the speed of change. You know, we, we look at, yes. you know, buy now, pay later is not a new concept, but the way it's being presented now is certainly new. But the impact, because people can engage in any of this so quickly, so easily on their phone, that the Chimes, the Sofis, the, the Daves, the Varos, all these fintechs now, because people can open them so easily without closing their legacy bank account, the legacy financial institutions are starting to say, you know what? We're not seeing the checks being written. And overall, we may be losing relationships while we still may be holding the accounts. Not the best place to be in. You're handling all the expenses, right. but none of the benefits. Totally, totally. And, and what's really interesting also is that a lot of these um, fintechs are becoming banks themselves. Yeah. I just saw the news that SoFi yep. just got a bank charter. We know Varo has a bank charter. Dave has intimated that maybe they'll become a bank um, and even if you don't have a bank charter, you know, banking as a service businesses um, are really enabling incredible uh, niche plays. And nowhere do you see this more than in the neobank space. How many um, institutions are there now that are using banking as a service to say, hey, I'm a bank focused on the African-American community, the LGBTQ plus community, uh, very small niches. And so even this language about bank, fintech, like to me, it doesn't make any sense. I understand completely the legal and regulatory differences. Um, but in terms of the uh, feature functionality and what you can do or not do with it, um, they're becoming in indistinguishable. You know, and what's interesting too is we're going to start to see that as organizations to start to rethink what banking is, um, which which novel concept. We've already seen it overseas that a lot of financial institutions are now realizing that the revenue element of the financial relationship can actually come from outside financial services. So you mentioned a lot of the segments that are being asserted. Well, there's a lot of organizations who want to reach those segments. Well, the revenue to drive that financial relationship could actually come from outside the financial institution, which opens up brand new doors for financial wellness and the way to fund the services that are needed. You know, I just saw today also that um, one of the fintechs has built a relationship with one of the tax preparers and whereby yeah. they say, you know, you do it through us, do it on our mobile app and we'll help pay for your tax services. Well, that's a financial wellness step. You know, it's it's reducing the cost of what we all take for granted, but it's really hard to do. And they, oh, by the way, they're also giving the money earlier. 
So it's again saying completely. You, you want your money earlier. You want a lower cost of of tax preparation. Do it through our mobile app. I mean, the mobility aspect and the the whole digital aspect opens up new doors. You know, you know. We've also seen banks and credit unions take a proactive stance in the deployment of financial wellness solutions, such as educational opportunities, new products. In fact, I wrote an article yesterday about what BBVA has done overseas with regard to wellness and act. Actually, the cross-sell services, the engagement level has just increased exponentially yep. because of these new services. What are some of the better programs you've seen in the marketplace? The, the efforts that seem to work most are not just about financial literacy or financial education. Um, certainly, the more we can give people relevant information in the moment of decision in a timely fashion, that's super valuable. Uh, but static content or a platform that's meant to be about engagement, but is really just, oh, you know, you've taken a quiz and now here are some things you should read about. That's not really going to do it. Uh, it's got to be deeply embedded with the offering uh, or the or the opportunity of various offerings. And then it's really about the experience. Um, and that's why I love your stuff so much, uh, Jim, because um, experience when we're talking about this, it experience is everything. You know, I, I went over the weekend, the long weekend to Warby Parker uh, to I'm finally going to switch to progressives. I'm not always in Warby Parker, but every time I go there, I am blown away by the, everything about the experience. And there are very few brands I can say that about. I can't think of a single bank brand that I could say that about. I was actually just at the bank yesterday. I will uh, I'll leave the bank nameless with my daughter, uh, the college student, uh, dealing with some uh, very minor uh, uh, matters. And nothing about that experience was positive in any way. <laughs> um, and it didn't work and it took longer. And, uh, you know, so I, I think that we've got to find ways to connect the products and services that banks offer to the experience that people want, not just a fun experience and a convenient experience, but about I'm trying to actually manage my financial life. How are you going to help me do that? Well, it could it could be in the background. It doesn't yes. have to be, you know, you mentioned, you know, I don't want to learn how to budget. I want you to do it for me. Exactly. I mean, you have enough information to know, you know, I, I call it the GPS of financial services. I, I don't want a map that I have to figure out. I want my GPS to tell me exactly what roads I should go to avoid the traffic, to avoid the, the the accidents, to take the shortcuts, and to get to my financial destination, in this case, faster and easier. And and that's financial wellness, and that hits every human being. And, totally. you know, we we look at this, I, I, I love Acorns. Acorns, on an ongoing basis, takes money on my account, 
I remember it back in the my 401k days that, you know, if I don't see it, I don't spend it. Well, in this case, you know, they take the money out and I've never built a savings account as big as I have through Acorns. And it's simply doing it in a painless way where I can always transfer it back again if I want it to. But what it's doing, it, it's helping me save. I look at PayPal and the way that they use my data for because I use PayPal to receive all my receipts and make all my payments to my contractors. And what that does, it gives them enough data to say, we have a bridge loan anytime you want it from a small business perspective, pre-approved, that you can get instantly. Well, my legacy financial institution, which is my business bank, won't provide me that. They they would not have enough data to make that decision. Of and so not. what ends up happening, as you reference, is what I want is I want you proactively to tell me what I should be doing next based on what you know about me. I don't want you to get me involved if you don't need to. I don't want my big personal bank to say, what days, what do you want to be your minimum balance before we warn you your balance is low? I'm going, you've had a relationship for 15 years. You know what how much I need in my account on the 14th of the month. You know how much I would need the month of the 28th of the month. You know when tuition is due. You know when tax payments are due. You know what those minimums are and what you should warn me about. In fact, I want you to remind me, by the way, you're a small business. Do you remember the tax they're doing on the 15th of January? That's the one I always miss because yeah. I, well, I don't miss, but I forget about the last minute because I, heck, I know April 15th, I did it for three quarters of my life, but now I got to remember January 15th, September 15th, you know, and, and I, I want help with that, you know. Totally. You know, the other thing that we find is that, you know, this is again, where non-financials are playing a bigger role. That, that the encouragement they have towards making it easier for me to do things, ranging from delivery of food to the delivery of products we talked about using Amazon in a pre-call. But, but you know, that's what we want from our financial institution. We know that Netflix can determine what movie I want to watch next. I want my bank to know what I should be doing next with my accounts. The self-driving wallet, I like to call it. Oh, ex perfect. Exactly. You know, and, and part of this also... How do we reach everybody? And, and, and a bit of a pivot here. There's a great deal of discussion lately around the way credit bureaus negatively portray customers with thin or non-existing credit files. With the data sources increasing daily and the anxiety over privacy and data security, is there a better solution going forward where we can use more data, greater data, new sources of data to make it so that we have everybody in the financial services marketplace as opposed to simply those above a certain income level? Yeah. Well, you know, you went where I was going to go, which is the, you know, one of the answers is more data, more, more, more. Um, but I, I don't think it's sufficient to say more data um, because really it's the models that determine how that data is viewed. So, uh, you know, there was several years ago now a big push to get payday loan data uh, included in traditional credit files, particularly when it became, when it was not just uh, uh, within 30 days, but there was some kind of installment feature. Um, and the fact is, even if it's included, it was being viewed as a negative in the ultimate modeling, which doesn't help anybody. Um, I think we're gonna see the same thing around uh, buy now, pay later. Um, as some folks are starting to say they're going to report to the credit bureaus. And, you know, my question is, well, do people think using that product is actually good or bad? Uh, so we've, there's more work that we've got to do on the modeling. Um, and I also think that right now, 
credit bureau data is not cash flow data, right? It's very traditional. Right. And the models are built that way. But increasingly, the things that seem to be breaking through, at least for retail lending, are cash flow based models. So again, we've got to change our the underwriters and the modelers point of view about what's a negative and what's a positive. Because if we think about what what's a thin or non-existent credit file, it's someone who hasn't had a loan there where there's a regular payment every month. Um, but that doesn't mean they don't have powerful cash flow data that could be um, leveraged to underwrite them for certain kinds of products. So I think it's more of a culture and mindset shift more than anything else. You know, it, it's interesting because it, it is, as you said, it's it's a mindset situation. It's also interesting in that when you look at overall the whole aspect of financial wellness, there's a lot of goods and bads. I mean, you, you've been in it for quite some time. What is it that you're most excited about as you look to the near future, we can't we can't go long term no. anymore. That, that's fruitless because we don't we we actually don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. But you've been in the business longer than anybody I know with regard to really focusing on one major aspect that until recently was relatively ignored. I, I can't imagine the challenges you had in the process. Now I'm sure people are opening doors a lot more frequently. But what makes you excited about the future of financial wellness? I think the awareness and the centrality, the people are recognizing not just this is an issue, but they're recognizing that it sits at the center of everything. Uh, and I think that also the appreciation that this is not just a financial services issue, that this is um, a broader issue within society and that we've got to have lots of people at the table who have an outsized influence on people's financial health, whether that's their employer, whether that's their healthcare provider, whether that's their um, landlord, whether that's their um, the their university or college, uh, and their financial services providers. We're all in this because you know your patient is my student, is his renter, um, is her bank customer. They're all the same person. We just look at them this way based on what we deliver. But if we find ways to lock arms with one another and make sure that we're not working at cross purposes, but we're all surrounding that person uh, with opportunities to build resilience and seize opportunities, um, I think we're really going to be able to move the needle. So what excites me is being able to bring an even larger cons constituency um, to this movement. So on the other side, then I should have done it the other way around because it's always better to end up on good news. What kind of scares you about the future? What what kind of is this frustrating about what's going on right now? Listen, the the, the pace of government and uh, government change is maddening. I don't think this is just a government issue, but I think they have a really important role to play, given that these challenges are decades in the making and in many cases are systemic. I think that's one really big challenge and frustration. I think the other is when I see people grabbing onto the mantle of financial health, uh, but not actually meaning it. Uh, and there's a risk there. That if enough people want to use this as wallpaper, um, that it will lose all meaning and all credibility. And it will be the fad that is now over in a couple of years because we didn't make anything of it. And so it's one of the reasons why we're so focused on measurement 
because what gets measured gets managed. And it's how we hold ourselves accountable for change. It's nice to be able to say what's going on in the country, um, but it's meaningless unless we can actually hold ourselves accountable for improving the financial health of our customers, of our employees. You know, it's interesting because it really gets to a situation where um, the the CEO of Lemonade Insurance had a very well where he said, you know, the biggest challenge to to financial uh, uh the financial transformation and, and wellness transformation is legacy leadership and legacy thinking. Um, change sucks. <laughs> I mean, it, it's not easy. But the reality is the pressure now is so dynamically a- achieved by not just the non-traditional financial institutions, but people, people that are in need. And, you know, I we've seen so much happen since the pandemic that is negative that I think some of these underlying issues that really are opening doors, I, I hope you're right, Jennifer, that that we don't end up in a situation that this becomes just window dressing. But I, I tend to think that it's going to be hard for it to be so when you have very large non-traditional financial institutions that are saying, whoa, there's a whole marketplace here to be made around people in need. Um, SoFi was actually, you know, one of the earliest ones just on on student loans, the refi- the need to refinance student lending. And they expanded from their Chime, uh, Current, Dave, all the other ones we mentioned, you know, really opened the eyes to there's a better way. And you and I can open an account in an instant, you know, and, and easily. So it's not like we have to, you know, we, we always thought, geez, the closing of accounts and all this. We don't, I don't have to close my account to open another one anymore. And in fact, I think financial institutions have really gotten caught by thinking mm. that, you know, but our attrition is so low. I'd, I'd be cautious mm. about that. You know, it may look like it's low, but if I have seven other suppliers, you don't have as much of my market, my overall financial relationships as you did in the past. So, What's interesting is we tend to think about these issues of data sharing and data rights as being fintechs wanting to leverage banking data. Um, and there's truth to that, but increasingly it's going to be multi-directional. Uh, and when we get to that point, I actually think the uh, customer is going to really be in the driver's seat. Uh, and then watch out because, uh, you know, then as we should be, right? We should be beholden to our customers. I think banks have gotten a pass there for a whole host of reasons. And, you know, I think, uh, the future is very much in the customer's hands. Well, uh, the uh, movement on overdraft fees and NSSCs is the, is the first the first brick in the wall. So um, things are starting to fall and that's all good because there's good business to have in doing well um, and, and doing well totally. out of being good, I should say. So Jennifer, thank you so much for being on the show. I really appreciate your role in the community and your role in the marketplace. And, and it's good to see um, you know, all the things you're doing. Can you share with our audience how they can not only get a hold of you, but also you have a, a podcast, you have ways that you uh, continually communicate with the, the marketplace as well. How do they get a hold of you and see what you're doing? I do. I appreciate that, Jim. And thanks so much for having me on. Um, go to our website, uh, finhealthnetwork.org. Uh, tons of research and great information. And at the very top, you'll see a button that says, listen. And if you click on that, you'll be able to find my podcast Emerge Everywhere. Great. Thanks again, Jennifer. I appreciate it. Yeah. Thanks, Jim. 
Thanks for listening to Banking Transformed. Raised a top five banking podcast and winner of three international awards for podcast excellence. If you enjoy what we're doing, please take 30 to 45 seconds to show some love in the form of review. It helps us to create great content and get great guests. Finally, be sure to see my recent articles on the financial brand and check out the research we're doing for the Digital Banking Report. This has been a production of Evergreen Podcast. A special thank you to our producer, Leah Longbreak, audio engineer, Sean Roe Hoffman, and video producer, Will Pritz. I'm your host, Jim Roos. Until next time, remember, financial wellness should not be a luxury for the few, but a basic requirement for all. You've got questions, we've got answers. Business leadership, ownership, and sales can be challenging. Tune into the Accelerate Your Business Growth podcast to learn from the world's experts. Join me, your host, Diane Helbig, as I chat with people who have expertise in various areas of business. You'll enjoy the lively conversations that are focused on providing you with the ideas, tips, and suggestions you need to realize greater success. Get what you need for your business when you need it from the people who have the answers. Accelerate Your Business Growth is part of the Evergreen Podcast Network and is available on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast.